You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. When I go grocery shopping, I look over the grocery store with a very particular perspective. I'm in the habit of paying very close attention to every item that I'm selecting. If I'm in produce, I am combing through all of the different fruits to get the the most perfect and beautiful fruits because I'm not trying to to spend my hard-earned money on some bruised or damaged fruit. I don't want damaged goods. If I am looking for a a sack of sugar or a, a bag of flour, I don't just grab a bag of flour or a bag of sugar off the shelf. The first thing I do is I move the ones in front. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Then I reach way to the back and I grab a pristine, perfectly packaged bag of flour or sugar. I don't want to get some bag of sugar and there's flour all over the place or, or some bag of sugar that has holes all poked in it. I don't want damaged goods. If I go into the aisle and I want to get some beans, first thing I do is I move the first layer of beans. And I reach in the back and I pull out a perfect can of beans because I don't want damaged goods. I don't don't want no dented cans of beans. I don't want no dented boxes of cereal. I, I, I I don't choose items with torn or scuffed labels. I don't want no packages of meat that are leaky because I don't like damaged goods. And on many days, I think that God looks over humanity like I look over a grocery store. I often think that God is in the habit of digging around for, for the most beautiful and talented among us because he doesn't want damaged goods. I often act like God slides certain people to the side and he reaches back for the most pristine and able among us because he doesn't like damaged goods. I often think that God avoids those who are dented, torn, scuffed, and leaky because he doesn't like damaged Goods, And maybe some of you out there are like me this morning. In those secret moments, you realize that that's really the impulse of your heart, that you think that God doesn't want damaged goods. But God is not put off by damaged goods. He's not put off by damaged people. He's not put off by damaged relationships because he loves the work of restoration. He loves the work of restoration. The fact is that all of humanity is damaged goods, but that doesn't stop God from shopping. Y'all hear me? All of us are damaged goods, but it doesn't stop God from shopping. And the reason why it doesn't stop God from shopping is because he doesn't need you to have it all together because he's a God of restoration. He's not deterred. By damaged goods. Maybe you walk in here this morning feeling like damaged goods. Maybe you feel kicked around by life. Maybe all the messages that you hear 
in the news make you feel very worthless, like you're not valuable. The message of scripture this morning is that you are a target of the God of heaven, people like you, because God is not put off by damaged goods. The story of scripture tells us that though God selects people to bring into his kingdom, he's not selective. I'm going to say that again, all right? Though God selects people, he sets his love on particular people. Just like many of you set your love on a particular woman and you married her, or a particular man and you married him. Though God selects, God is not selective. He'll get with anybody. God can rock with anybody, no matter what's going on in their life. No matter what kind of baggage they bring. No matter what their story is. No matter how many letters they have behind their name. No matter how many numbers they got in their bank account. God is not selective in that way. He doesn't need to be selective because he's able to restore. And so this morning, we are going to move into our text of Exodus chapter 34. And we're going to approach the topic of restoration. And we've been walking through the book of Exodus since January. And we are wrapping it up. Next week is the final sermon in our series on the book of Exodus. And we are going to get into the theme of restoration this morning, and we're going to approach it through two points, where we see the ground of restoration and the glory of restoration. The ground of restoration and the glory of restoration. So let's look at our first point, the ground of restoration. Now, a few weeks ago, we walked through Exodus chapter 28. And if you weren't here, what we talked about in Exodus chapter 28 is how that chapter detailed the clothing of the priest. And it, it took us into the ministry of the priesthood. And it gave us a description of the ministry of the priest through the clothing of the priest. And if you remember, there were some powerful things going on in that text. And I'm going to name the three powerful things going on in that text. One, we saw that in the garb of the priest, the garb of the priest had two onyx stones that were engraved with the 12 names of, of the tribes of Israel. And he wore them on, their, on his shoulders. And it, it showed us that the priest would carry the people of Israel on his shoulders before the Lord in prayer. That's what a priest does. He carries his people on his shoulders before the Lord to pray for them. But we also saw that on the breast piece were 12 gemstones, each engraved with one of the names of the tribes of Israel. And we saw that the priest carried the people on his heart before the Lord. He brought their covenant claims before the Lord. He brought the, the promise that God made back to him so that the people could be received. And then finally, he wore a turban and it had a gold plate on the front and it said, holy to the Lord. And we saw that not only did the priest have the people on his shoulders and the people on his heart, but he had holiness on his mind. And he, he made the people's gifts acceptable to God. And in Exodus 28, we saw the priestly ministry described. But in Exodus 34, we see the priestly ministry depicted. Okay? It's not just left in the ethereal for the imagination purely. It's not like a manual, a descriptive book. What it is is he begins to paint a picture, and it's through the priestly work of Moses for the people. 
Last week, Pastor Joe talked. He began to lean into Exodus 32, and we know the story, many of us, of how Israel, right fresh out of redemption, fresh out of seeing God do amazing things, fresh out of seeing God rescue and put down their enemy, they grow impatient, and they fall into idolatry. They leap into idolatry. And it's like the whole story comes to a screeching halt. And we begin to wonder how it is they can make it back from this. Have any of you ever had something happen in your life and you wonder, can I make it back from this? Have you ever had something happen in a relationship and you wonder, how can we make it back from this? That we have things happen in our lives. Things fall apart as, as the novelist Achebe says. Things fall apart. And the question on everyone's mind is, how can I make it back? How can things be brought back? And the beauty of the story of Scripture is that we have, in bright lights, a picture of the fact that God is the kind of God who brings people back. He's the kind of God who restores the broken. And so we get into this this text, it's a, it's a depiction of priestly action. Moses is going to ascend the mountain with the sins and the needs of the people. And he's going to descend the mountain with mercy, grace, and a covenant restored. Pay attention to that action because it's going somewhere. In this text, we see the mediation of Moses. And we, we have to ask this question, y'all. On what ground can you be restored? What is the basis of restoration? If we're honest, we all recognize that we need restoration. But the question is, on what ground can I be restored? And, and I'm going to tell you something. Many people try to get restoration on the wrong grounds. Let's talk about that. Many people try to get restoration on the grounds that they're going to try harder and recommit. How many of y'all in the past have, have, have been the, to, the, to the front of the church multiple times recommitting your life to Jesus? Amen. Hallelujah. You got to recommit. I'm serious this time, God. I'm going to get my act together this time. So restore me. But your recommitments and your you're trying harder is not the ground of restoration. The ground of restoration is not you beating yourself up to prove that you really feel bad for your sin. How many of you try to do that like head fake with God? It's like, like he doesn't see down to the bottom of your heart. And you're like, I'm just going to will myself to feel really bad about this. And then maybe God will have me back. But your feelings are not the ground of restoration. What we see in the text, y'all, check it out. It's the ground of restoration is the mediation of Moses and the character of God. That's the ground. It's on those grounds that Israel is restored. Let's look at the first thing, the mediation of Moses. They have a go-between. They have someone to speak on their behalf. They have someone to bring their need before God who was not touched by their failure. Y'all see this. Y'all, you just going somewhere, y'all. You see, Moses had not fallen into the same idolatry as Israel. He was free from their affliction, as it were. He had not fallen in. And so he was able, because he had not fallen in, 
to represent them before God. And I want you to notice in the text, the text, chapter 32 through chapter 34 is one unit. And it is peppered with the intercession of Moses. Moses going in between God and Israel. I want you to look at these passages. Begin with chapter 32, verses 11 through 14. And we're just going to walk through. See how many times and how urgent Moses goes on behalf of Israel to the Lord. Look at this. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Moses is going in on behalf of Israel. But look at 32 verses 30 through 32, y'all. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not... Please blot me out of your book that you have written. You see he's interceding. Go to chapter 33, verses 12 through 17. Moses said to the Lord, see you say to me, bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Listen, consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. But that wasn't good enough for Moses because Moses didn't want to go alone. You see, Moses could have been the beginning, a new beginning of the nation. God said, I'm starting over with you, Moses. But why does God go back and forth with Moses? Because he wants you to envision a mediator who is determined to intercede, a mediator who will not go alone. He wants to bring his people with him. Watch this, verse 15. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I am your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I am your people? from every other people on the face of the earth? Do you see how Moses is adamant? He continues to bring the people. God's like, I'll start over with you, Moses. He's like, the people, let's not leave them. These are your people. You made promises to our fathers. These are your people. Make promises to me and them. Consider that they too are your people. Do you see the setup here? Because it is when we begin to peer into the heart of this mediator that we begin to appreciate where we are situated. Yes, this people has sinned a great sin, and so have we. On many occasions, on a number of times, we sin great sins, 
But that is not cause for despair because we have one who is greater than Moses who continues to bring our name to the Father. That's good news this morning. That he continues. He said, now Jesus could have gone alone. Jesus could have, he could have been like, all right, we good, Father. God doesn't need anyone else. But he is intent. He says, now, Father, me and your people. It's a beautiful thing to see how Moses continues to bring the names of Israel. He continues to pepper the passage with his intercession. But you know what's even more beautiful? is to see the way that your life is peppered with the intercession of Jesus. That for every sin, there is a corresponding answer from the mouth of Jesus on your behalf. It is a beautiful thing in scripture that the only time you see Jesus silent is when he himself is falsely accused. But he's never silent when his people are accused. That's good news. He always has an answer for the accuser. He has an answer for all of the sins of his people. For every failure and fault, Jesus has an answer. And in that, there is so much freedom. There is so much freedom. There's so much encouragement in that one thought that Jesus peppers the throne room with intercession for you. With intercession for you, we see his tenderness. We've got to be careful that we don't confuse the ground of our restoration, y'all. You know, if you've been around the church for any length of time, you've heard the message, it's not by your good works that you get in, right? How many of you have heard that before? I hope you've heard that here, all right? But you know what? (laughs) Oftentimes, we're cool with the message that it's not your good works that get you in, but we fall into the idea that it's our good works that keep us in. You've got to mind your P's and Q's. You've got to stay on your game. You, you, you got to make sure that you don't get God too ticked off. He might blow you up. We fall into this thinking that we are, go- we are the ones that maintain this thing. And listen, it doesn't mean that you have a license to ill, that you can just wild out. But it's a whole different thing to live the life of holiness out of the assurance of God's love rather than to try and get it. You dig? That's a big difference. And this calls for a particular kind of repentance, y'all. We need to repent of diminishing the finished work of Jesus and his continuing ministry for us. That's what keeps us in. He's the one who keeps us in. Get rid of this mentality. Oh, thanks for getting me in, Jesus. I'll take it from here. That's craziness. And you know what? That's a recipe for burnout and cynicism. You'll get jaded with church with the faith, and you'll find yourself on the rocks. But the only reason is because you are exhausted from trying to maintain this thing on your own. The ground of their restoration has nothing to do with them at all. (laughs) It has to do with the mediator and the character of God. Now check this, check this. This theme continues multiple times through scripture. Remember Luke 15 and the story of the father and the two sons. It was not the son's canned speech that got him back into the good graces of the father. And that was not what created the feast. It was the full heart of the father. And the father didn't want to have nothing to 
nothing to do with his hand speech. He just wanted to put the robe on his stinking son and put the ring on his finger and the shoes on his feet. And he wanted to throw a party because this son of mine was lost and has been found again. It is not your do-gooding. You're trying. There aren't enough little old ladies in the world to help across the street to keep you in. It's only Jesus that can keep you in. And guess what? He's delighted to keep you in. He loves to keep you in. It is to his glory that he keeps you in. Because it shows that the reason why you got in and the reason why you're kept in has everything to do with his mercies. And that's what he wants to put on display. His mercies, his grace, his glory in the gospel. That's what Ephesians 1 says. It was to show his greatness and glory. That's that's important for us. That's the ground. Remember, he's the savior. You're the saved. He's the keeper. You're the kept. You're the sheep. He's the shepherd. He is the one who keeps us in. He's the ground. Because listen, if we were able to keep ourselves in, then we wouldn't wind up here in the first place. Right? We wouldn't be here in the first place if we keep ourselves. That shows the urgency and the necessity of Jesus. So we, we must be careful on the ground. But not only this, look, Moses, here's the, here's the powerful thing, right? Even Moses, the, Moses does something beautiful here that reflects and leads to Jesus. But even Moses is going to grow tired of these people. Even Moses is going to run out of patience with these fools. Moses is going to lose his sympathy. But the good news for you this morning is that Jesus never will. Jesus doesn't run out of patience with his people. Jesus doesn't run out of sympathy with his people. Jesus has a heart that cannot be exhausted for his people. He is the ground of our restoration. But also, look, why is Moses' appeal effective for restoration? Not only is the mediator determined and persistent, y'all, but the mediator is appealing to a God who has a certain kind of character. And that's the second ground, right? It's the character of God. Look at verses 5 through 8. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Do you see? This is the God he's coming to. Lose this idea of the peevish God of the Old Testament and the kind and gracious Jesus. God is gracious through and through. He's merciful. And a lot of times we read this passage as if it's the opposite, as if God is quick to anger, as if he's vengeful and abounding in judgment and spitefulness, as if he does not forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. This is often the way that we, we react to God when we fail. The truest, the truest test of what you really think about God is what you do right after you sin real bad. You know, the heart that is not thinking clearly about the father, when they sin, they say, oh, man, 
I got to fix it up. The heart that really gets the story of grace and the goodness of the gospel says, oh, man, I messed up. I got to go talk to my father. Are you in the mindset of saying, oh, man, I messed up. I got to make this right. I got to fix it. Or I messed up. I got to go talk to my father. That tells you your perspective on what God is like. But let this story heal your perspective. Redirect your, your outlook this morning of what God is like. These are the grounds of restoration. But let's look at the glory of restoration. And we see this in verses 29 through 35. Now, here's the deal. Something very strange happens in this text, right? When Moses intercedes, you need to see what the result is, right? The, the story is peppered with the intercession of Moses. And then what is the result? Verse 10 of chapter 34. And God said, behold, I'm making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. Listen. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. You know what? God restores you not just for yourself, but for witness. One of the greatest ways that God advances the glory of his name is by bringing broken, jacked up, broke down people like you and me back home. Because it sends a message that other people are welcome to come home too. There are no prerequisites that you got to figure out. You could come home. This is what's powerful about this text. But after Moses goes up, he goes up with the people's grievances, their sins, their weight, their brokenness. And he comes back down. He comes back down. And his face is shining because he's been talking with God. And chapter 33, verse 11 tells us, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. We're seeing something here. The glory of restoration, y'all, is communion. Communion with God. You know, many people, when they think about heaven, when they think about glory, they get excited about all the amenities. There's going to be good stuff in, in glory. It's going to be amazing food. It's going to be beautiful scenes. It's going to be a tearless day. And, and scripture invites us to celebrate and anticipate those things. But the most glorious thing, the great glory of restoration is going to be communion. It's going to be God himself. It's going to be face to face with him. Because, you know, because Moses is unstained by the same failure, as it were, in the narrative telling of Israel, we are able to see this comparison and this contrast. Because ultimately we see in the story and the development of scripture that what God wants is for the faces of all his people to glow. You know, when Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, he brings Peter, James, and John. He brings the homies. And he goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration and it tells us that Jesus pulls back the curtain on who he is. And they are blown away at the brilliance of the glory of Jesus. And then all of a sudden, who appears but Moses and Elijah? And Jesus is, is having this dialogue, and you know what he's doing, right? He, he's letting Moses and Elijah down gently. He's saying, fellas, your services will be needed no more. I am the final prophet. I am the final priest and leader of the people. And the disciples see this. But later on, you know what Paul is going to say, right? 
Do you know what Paul's going to say? Look at this. This is beautiful. There is a democratization of this glory shining in the people of God. If you go to 2 Corinthians, y'all, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And Paul is riffing on, on this passage in Exodus 34 in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Listen to what he says. He says, listen. Now, here's the context. He's defending his ministry as an apostle. But along the way, he drops these nuggets for us. And it's very insightful. And it gives, us, it gives us a picture into Paul's vision of the Christian life via Exodus 34. He says this, in comparing the ministry of the Old Covenant with the ministry of the New Covenant. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation... The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Listen to this, y'all. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But, listen, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is lifted. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, somebody say all. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you see, when Jesus ascends Mount Calvary with our sins and our failures and our brokenness, when he ascends to the right hand of the Father, who comes down but the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? To equip God's people. And on the descent in Exodus 34, the people see the glory and they're terrified. But when Jesus descends, fear is no more and there's only freedom. Do you see that? There's something different when Jesus ascends and descends. And now we all are to shine with the brilliance of this glory that we see in Jesus. Do you see the democratization? The democratization of this experience of glory. It is an amazing thing to see God take damaged goods and to shine his glory through us. It's a powerful thing. Do you see it? We are transformed, it says, from one degree of glory to the next. And I love how Paul will eventually put it, who's getting beat up and roughed up and he's suffering and he's being beaten and he's being stoned and he's being left for dead and he's being shipwrecked. And he says, though our outer body is wasting away, our inward man is being renewed day by day. In other words, don't be fooled by appearances. Reflecting this glory is something so much more. Something so much more. This is a powerful story. And we see that Jesus leads us in transformation. Not only is it communion, the glory of restoration is communion with God, but it's also conformity to the likeness of Christ. 
So let's talk about how this works into our lives briefly. Here's the deal. Here's the big picture of this story. The big picture of this story is a people that has really messed up bad. And they have been restored. And it's a beautiful thing. And we are caught right here. And we recognize that we all love to be restored. We just often don't like to pursue the restoration of others. And what this story is meant to do is it's meant to work in our hearts and to shape our community in such a way that we become a community of restoration. We love to see those who would be counted out coming in because we have such hope and anticipation because of our story. If God's restoring the likes of people like Russ Whitfield, he's restoring any kind of person. I'm telling you that right now. If he's restoring people like me, he's restoring any kind of people. So there might be some relationships that you need to pursue today that need some restoration. Maybe today you need to seek personal restoration, not on the grounds that you're going to try harder this time. Not on the grounds that you're going to get your act together, that you're going to turn over a new leaf, that you're going to get a little tune-up, and then you're going to take it from here. Thanks very much, Jesus. But on the grounds of what Jesus is even doing right now as he sits at the right hand of the Father for you. Do you know right at this very moment, you might be sitting there blasé about God, but he's not blasé about you. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father pleading your case, speaking his words of affirmation and love, reminding the Father as if he even needed reminding, but saying, just remember what I did, Father. Remember my work. Remember my sufferings. Remember my finished, completed work. And take their sins away. Receive them as you receive me. For my sake. To know that you are loved in that way and kept in that way. Is to give you great freedom to restore other people who have hurt you. Who have wounded you. In your marriages, some of you are facing very difficult things right now. One of you has hurt the other really bad. I know. I'm your pastor. And I'm so glad that I get to be in that mess with you. But you know what? One of the most powerful ways that we bear witness, remember the text, restoration. It's an astonishing thing to see someone forgive grievous sin in the human tangible way because of a longing to reflect the restoration I've received vertically. It's a beautiful thing to do that horizontally. We might need to find someone and repent and say, I've been, I've been holding you up in a standard that God does not hold me to. Making you grope and grovel to try and get back in my good graces when God has never done that to me. Will you forgive me? I'm going to love freely. And sometimes it takes time to get there. But it's a good aspiration to be a restorative community. To be the kind of community where we expect to see needy people in here every Sunday. It's the, it's the, it's the power of the story. And we have hope that we'll be changed from one degree of glory to the other. God doesn't leave us there. We are dignified because we are his image. And his commitment to us will, will yield glory. So let us lean into this story. Let us lean into these, these pictures. Remembering that God is not scared off by damaged goods. Amen. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.